Larry Page, I used to speak to quite a lot, was one of the founders of Google. When he heard about my daughter, he said, Ben, if you want to stop your job and cure cancer, I'll fund you. I thought about it for a few weeks. I thought, <laughs> I've got the backing of Larry Page. I wonder if I can cure cancer. <laughs> At some stage with Google, we're doing a European sales conference in Seville. Larry Page and, and Sergey, the founders, had come down and they had their Google jet, which, you know, was a big deal. And Larry said to me, Ben, do you want to jump on the jet and we'll go back to London? We'll go back to London. I said, um, which, city, which airport are you going to? This city airport. I said, I oh, know my car's at Gatwick, so thank you. But, and, and I just thought there'll be plenty more chances to go on the Google jet. Never got asked again. Oh, no. Because think about when are my routes going to coincide with Larry Page's routes? Hardly ever, you know. I'm Nick Haley, founder of Little Big Tech. After more than a decade in the army, I left and joined civilian life. In this podcast series, I'll be speaking to entrepreneurs who left military service and started the next exciting chapter in their lives. We'll hear how these inspiring individuals transitioned from active service to the world of business. How did they take the first step on the road to becoming an entrepreneur? We'll find out. Welcome to Little Big Vets, the veteran entrepreneurs podcast. We often think of our lives as running in tandem with our careers. We go to school for the first decades of our life, work for the rest, and then retire for the last. Some of us stick with the same career whilst others move from one to the next. Not many of us can say we've had a career as varied or distinguished as my guest on today's podcast, Ben Legg. Ben spent the 1990s in the British Army, the noughties as a blue chip corporate leader, the 2010s as a C-suite executive in tech, and he's currently spending the 2020s as the co-founder of his own business, The Portfolio Collective. Thanks for having you on today, Ben. Good to be here. So if we go back to, to the start, mm -hmm. uh, when you joined the army, yeah. can you tell us a bit about your, your experience joining the army and yeah. uh, what you got to So uh, I always wanted to join the army since I was three years old. Not from a military family. Dad was an accountant. Mum was a teacher. I just wanted to join the army. was in the scouts, in the cadets, etc. Then I discovered there was this boarding school for potential army officers, went there, called Welbeck College. It's closed now. And so I literally went straight from school, did A-levels, went to Sandhurst. But knowing I'd pick up an engineering degree after Sandhurst, so another thing that's been closed probably because it's too expensive, but I basically got a degree on full pay. So I wanted to join the Royal Engineers. Great. I wanted to travel around the world, building things and blowing things up. And that's what I did. So, you know, studied civil engineering, went out all over the world doing interesting things to do with military engineering, involved things like designing bomb-proof structures in Northern Ireland. A ton of fun doing that, partly because when you design something new, you have to check if, if it can be blown up. The best way to do that <laughs> is to build it and try and blow it up. <laughs> so that was a lot of fun. Uh, I spent time in Bosnia during the war in charge of all the military engineers in and around Sarajevo. Basically, our job was to end the siege of Sarajevo. And as a royal engineer, that meant turning the mountain range around Sarajevo into a big military base for NATO, including gun positions, you know, takeoff and landing points for planes, uh, roads, clearing mines, etc. And ultimately, getting the aid convoys in, avoiding mines and feeding 750,000 people in Sarajevo before they starve to death. So a really interesting time, first 10 years of my career. And yeah, a lot of adventures, a lot of learning, a lot of fun. What made you want to move on from that? I think partly I joined the army for adventure and learning and other stuff. And I kind of feel like the army in your 20s is all about adventure. It's regimental life and you're always busy. And as I was looking at the next decade, I was kind of thinking... 
there's a lot of desk work there. And although there's nothing wrong with desk work, I kind of thought if I'm going to do it, I'll do it on a higher salary, quite frankly. Uh, and so there's a, the army's very clever at having lots of little hooks to keep you in. So I was you know, running up to do a you know, master's degree on full pay, but it would be two years on that plus a four-year time bar. I thought that's six years. I'll do without the master's degree. And so I left when I was 29, about a year or so away from that master's degree and said, I'll try my chances elsewhere. That's a similar position that I got to. So yeah, I spent yeah. my 20s just basically doing all the cool stuff that yeah, you joined yeah, the yeah, army yeah. to do. And then I was, I was coming up to 30 and it was like, yeah, it might be time to go and go yeah. and try something else. Exactly, and, yeah. And maybe earn a little bit more money in the process. Exactly. There, there, I have read articles that kind of say, yeah, it's a good thing to change careers every 10 years. I read it after I've done it three times. So it wasn't a plan. It was just kind of like a, <laughs> I fancy something different, basically. Yeah. yeah. We'd always be told things by like people who've been in the army a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Oh, you, you wouldn't get paid as much for doing the sort of things that you do if you left the army. And um, yeah. that, that's just categorically not true. Oh, yeah, I tripled my pay when I left the army. Yeah, that, that took me about three years. Yeah. But, yeah. but still, yeah, yeah. That, that's three years. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Which yeah. there's definite opportunity <laughs> out there. <laughs> So when you were when you'd made the decision mm-hmm. to leave, yeah. did you have a clear plan about what you wanted to do? Not really. I kind of said, look, I want to be a CEO one day. What is the path or paths to get there? And do I need to retrain or can I go straight into work? Because by the time I left the army, I had two kids. They were booked into private school. I didn't know how I was going to pay the fees. So the whole going up and doing an MBA wasn't really an option. So I was looking at the world and thinking, you know, Maybe there's kind of be an MD of a small business unit in a bigger company, you know, maybe consulting. I thought about law for a bit, but realized I wouldn't make a good lawyer. I'd get bored. And so I was kind of thinking about this whole consulting, but a lot of the top consultants would only take you if you had a top MBA. And I couldn't afford to do that. So I've, anyway, I, I randomly applied to some at the post MBA level without an MBA and just got lucky timing. So I approached you know, McKinsey, which is like probably the sort of top strategy consultants at the post MBA level. And lucky for me, they'd got to a point where they realized, this is like 99, they realized that if we keep hiring people from the same mold, typically engineering or an economics degree, time as an analyst in investment banking, consulting, you know, whatever, then an MBA, they would be too samey. They needed some variety. They also realized that they might have to lower their standards because they'd hit a certain scale where if they only hired from that one pool, they might have to lower their standards. So they said, well, where else can we get people of a similar caliber who culturally would fit, even if they've got a different background? And they said, let's look out for any military doctors or lawyers who might fit. And I guess they'd had that conversation a few months before I applied. And they said, this guy looks like he might fit. He's got the engineering degree. So you know, he's got some, I actually had half an MBA. So I did half an MBA in Bosnia during the war in the evenings. I kind of alternated my evenings between doing an MBA and drunken arm wrestling with French Foreign Legion. It's like a nice way to mix it up. So I had half an MBA. I had an engineering degree. They put me through the process. I passed. And so I kind of got into McKinsey at the post-MBA level without an MBA. That's quite an achievement. Yeah, it was kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> so then uh, what was life like uh, working at McKinsey? It was cool. You know, so I mean, strategy consulting is an amazing thing to learn. So I, in my th- I spent three years there worked on eight client projects. So it's kind of, you know, projects are fairly long, a few months per time. And first of all, because I didn't have an MBA, I kind of did this mini MBA. It was like a, you know, a few weeks of intense learn, fill in the gaps. Yeah. Uh, and if, when you're ex-military, you don't know much about finance or marketing in particular. So I had to learn all about those. And I did that. And then they said, right, for your first project, the most important thing is to learn the consulting toolkit. So let's start close to home. So actually my first job was a sort of defense technology related project. 
And then as you start to learn how to be a good consultant, they start saying, what else do you want to learn about? So I want to learn about you know, um, finance. Okay, do you want to do a job in a project in banking? So when did a job in banking? I want to learn more about marketing. Okay, right, let's do a job in marketing. So in three years, I kind of deliberately picked projects where I started off learning the consulting toolkit, but ended up learning about industries that looked interesting, functional skills that I felt I had gaps in. So I got to the end of it, kind of really feeling like I didn't need the MBA. Um, I picked up a whole load of skills, have McKinsey on my CV, but I didn't really want to be a partner at McKinsey. I wanted to go out and sort of be a CEO of something. And so I kind of, after, when the training at McKinsey started moving from learning about business to learning how to be a better consultant, like how to be like, how to become a partner, I thought, right, it's probably time to sort of move on and do something else. While you were picking the projects yeah. and things to get involved in, was that all still with the the thought in mind that I'm trying to build the profile for me to go? Yeah, it's, it's, so I very much joined it thinking this is like a paid MBA, but instead of having case studies, you have real clients. So how do I learn? Obviously, do well, learn, but try and fill the gaps that I had you know, from the army so that my CV would look more like a CEO CV. Yeah, ex-military military is awesome makes you a good COO, good chief of staff, you know, good in HR. There's a few things where the army is really good. But to be a CEO, you do need to understand things like finance and marketing and things. So it's filling in the gaps, um, getting a good strategy consultancy on, under my belt as well. And also traveling. I mean, I, I was officially based in London. I think I ran one project in London. The other seven were all over the world. So that was pretty cool too. Nice. So do you think that the time in the army, like moving around job to job, yeah. helped you then go into a consultancy where you were moving from one thing so to another. Is, I don't think it's necessarily the travel. I, I love travel, so I have picked jobs based on location and travel. But it's it's more the ethos, and especially being in the army and an engineer. Like every you know, engineering project is a is a project. So you you don't work in some steady state. You're always saying there's a problem. Let's solve it. Let's build something. Let's check it works. Let's move on. And so and so consulting. Everything's a project. You know, there's a client, they've got a problem, you've got to try and solve it, come up with recommendations, get them accepted, you know, hand over, move on. So that whole very professional, high standard, work hard, play hard project management was a very easy cultural switch. There were just gaps in my learning I had to fill in. It's also quite fun in a way because a lot of people say that strategy consultants is very high pressure because, you know, clients are paying you a fortune and expect perfection. But at the same time, when you been in the army, nothing afterwards is that stressful again because no one's going to die. Yeah. Someone <laughs> shouting at you is not the same as someone it, shooting at exactly, you. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> what's the worst thing happen? They get fired. You know, yeah. okay, you've got good CVs. We'll be okay, you know. Um, so not that let's be slack, but, you know, let's not get stressed about this. Let's just do the best job we can, you know, with the resources available. Yeah. So you, you just covered why you were thinking about why you decided it was the time to move on yeah. from McKinsey. Yeah. And uh, so what, what did you do from that? So my next step, I was still thinking, right, I, you know, I need to be a CEO, but still haven't got all the right building blocks yet. So then I was coming back to what would be a good next step. And because I was still thinking corporate life, I wasn't thinking portfolio career or startups then. It was less popular than it is now. And so the key things that were lining up, I thought, were either biz dev, you know, business development, which would, would be great with my background and it's a good stepping stone towards CEO or maybe get, coming back to being an MD of a business unit in a bigger organization. And then a random thing cropped up. This is the day still of job ads in newspapers. There was an ad in the Sunday Times for director of training and development for a big chunk of Coca-Cola, like 28 countries, 40,000 people, etc. And I like training and development. You know, coming out of the army, you go to training and development. Actually at McKinsey, I redesigned a lot of their leadership training. I thought, 
I'd be quite good at that. It was in Athens too, and it was a pampered expat job. You know, the job came with the house, you know, the, all expenses paid, school fees, the works. I thought it's kind of pampered. It's a cool brand to work for Coca-Cola. It's a job I could probably do well, but I kind of thought it's HR. I'm not sure I want to be labeled as an HR person. I believe in it, but I don't want to be labeled. I don't want to get stuck in the HR function. So I went for the interview, really for interview practice, not thinking it would go anywhere, and met the group HR director who was would have been my boss. And she was awesome. She liked me. I liked her. And she said, you're not convinced, are you? I can tell you're going to turn me down. And I said, yeah, probably. <laughs> and she said, why? I said, we told her why. I don't want to get labeled as HR. Happy to do this job for a couple of years, but I want something else after it. She said, the CEO of Coca-Cola is in the next room. Do you want to meet him? <laughs> I said, sure. Not really get to meet the CEO of Coca-Cola. So yeah, I'll do that. Um, went in. He said, um, I get exactly where you're coming from. He said, you know, I've been thinking of getting myself a chief of staff. Do you want a hybrid role where you're part, my chief of staff, part, you know, director of training program? I said, yeah, I'll take it. He said, it will involve a lot of travel on the private jet. I said, I'm sure I can cope. <laughs> <That's> awful. <laughs> yeah, you have to write my decks. Yeah, I'm okay with PowerPoint. Three is consulting. You can do PowerPoint. So I kind of got this hybrid. The other thing he said, he said, if you do well, I'll give you a job with PL responsibility two years later. As just a handshake, nothing in writing, but, you know, he was a man of his word. I did that job, did it well, loved it. And two years later, I moved with Coca-Cola up to, from Greece to Poland, was the number two in Coca-Cola Poland, running sales, marketing, logistics for the whole country. Um, so that was my first P&L job. And then that did went really well. And actually, we were rated as the best run sales force in the world for Coca-Cola and asked to host the global conference for Coca-Cola. All the CEOs and heads of sales from around the world came to Warsaw. And at some stage, we were showing them around Warsaw, introducing them to customers, et cetera. And the CEO of Coca-Cola India was there. And he said, I need you in Poland. Can I talk? Sorry, in India, can I talk to your boss? Wow. I said, yeah, totally. India sounds cool. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he talked to my boss. I went off to India and it was a big turnaround. So in some ways it was the same job, bigger territory, but much more high profile because Coca-Cola India had previously had lost $100 million, which is a lot even for Coca-Cola, a mixture of bad strategy, incompetent execution and corruption. So they fired the whole senior management team and brought in you know, an expat CEO who brought in four or five people. So I was there to fix sales, marketing, pricing, logistics, et cetera. And it was a massive turnaround. Every month, the global COO of Coca-Cola came to visit us to see how it was going. But we went from 100 million loss to 100 million profit in two years. And it was kind of like a really monster turnaround. So it was a really good thing. Wow. What do you think was was about that you brought to the table that enabled that kind of turnaround? So it wasn't just me, it was a team effort. But you know, I guess one of the biggest things was rigor. So the previous team had kind of written strategies, not thought it through. And then there was a bit of a brown nosing culture of, you know, if the boss says it, we'll all do it. And no one really challenged the plan and kicked it around enough. Actually, Atlanta, the global head office challenged it, said, no, you can't do it. So then they did it anyway and hid what they were doing from Atlanta. That's where the corruption came in. They weren't classic corruption of trying to line their own pockets. They were hiding from Atlanta the fact they were executing a strategy they were told not to execute because it wouldn't work and it didn't work. So it was really just rigor of thinking about who are we selling to? What are we selling? At what price? What's the margin? How do we do you know, logistics? How do we do distribution? Uh, how do we train? I had 20,000 salespeople. How do you train them rigorously? How do you check standards? How do you ensure you've got great leaders all over the place? And India is obviously massive and diverse. How do you avoid corruption? There's just all these things. And it was just joining the dots. It was like, you know, really complex execution. And it's just bringing rigor to all of that. Like a back to basics for a lot of the... Well, it's back to basics, but the complexity comes in the scale. Yeah. You know, when yeah. you've got 
you know, a country of a billion people with 300 million people drinking or consuming your products and 20,000 salespeople, there's a complexity in that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you're now, what, four years at Coca-Cola? So five. So I did two in Greece, two in Poland, one in India. And then things were going really well in, in India. And then I one day I was, it was another Pampered X Factor. I was lying by my swimming pool in Delhi, having a gin and tonic on a Sunday, I think. <laughs> Got a phone call from the UK. I thought, that's random. It's probably a family thing. It was Google saying, do you want to come back to the UK to be the COO of UK Benelux and Ireland? So it was only five countries, but half of all European revenue. I said, why do you want me? You know, you're Google. I'm selling fizzy drinks in India. <laughs> so there was a fun story that went with it, which kind of defined it. So what had happened is Google for UK Benelux and Ireland had a new uh, leader um, sent over from the US, a guy called Dennis Woodside, really nice guy. And he turned up and was kind of appalled at what he found. It was like a bunch of amateurs selling a product they didn't understand. Revenue was growing like crazy, like 100% a year, but no one could explain why. It was just selling itself because basically people kept using Google for search and there were some tech ads on the right side and people kept buying them. But your average sales pitch was pictures of the early Google servers made out of Lego getting drunk and picking up a check for 100 grand. If only we all had that problem. <laughs> but it was really amateur. And on top of that, they were trying to monetize the other products like the Google Display Network and Google Maps and nothing was working. And basically, communication between Europe and Mountain View had broken down because both sides thought the other side was stupid and, and unprofessional. No one was stupid, but there were a lot of really immature. It was basically Google was still behaving like a scrappy startup, even though it had a few billion in revenue. So Dennis realized the problem, but he didn't know exactly how to implement the answer. His background was, you know, studied law, worked for a Supreme Court judge, a very smart guy. Then I think what he do, did an MBA, worked at McKinsey for a bit, did a strategy job at Google, and suddenly he's running a big chunk of Google. So he'd never got his hands dirty with that. So he said, not a problem. I'll hire a right-hand you know, person to help me. And that person needs to be A, an ex-strategy consultant, because Google didn't have a strategy of how to make money. So, so who can write that plan? Number two, an engineer, because there were no engineers on the business side of Google. He wanted somebody to build bridges with the engineers because ultimately we had to build ad products. Number three, they needed to have done senior sales or marketing roles because our primary job in Europe was to build a disciplined sales force to sell a new type of marketing to ignorant customers. You know, digital was still new then. And number four, ideally the person's ex-military to kick some butt. Literally, that was the wish list. They wow. searched the whole world, found one person, <laughs> and it was me, hence the phone call on a Sunday. So someone accidentally um, described you in a Yeah, dog. exactly. <laughs> so it was kind of, when they told me that on the phone, it's like, well, I'm back for Christmas in a couple of weeks. I'll come in for a day for an interview. And that, this is when Google interviews were like you know, 12 interviews spread over three months. I said, you've got a day, that's it, because I'm going to have some, some time for Christmas. So they lined up six interviews in a day, made me an offer before I left the office. Wow. Yeah. That must have been quite some day. It was a busy yeah. day, <laughs> uh, but it was fun. And so, you know, my three years at Google, I did lots of stuff, obviously, and ended up as the COO of Europe. But really, the primary thing I did was write the first ever plan for how Google makes money. And that is still the plan today. Obviously, it's had a lot of upgrades, but it became, you know, London became the tail wagging the dog of Mountain View when it came to how on earth are we going to monetize all of our different products? That's incredible. I, I guess there's not a lot of people realize that it's an ex-army officer that actually ended up at Google and said, no, this is how you do it. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. and that is now how they do yeah, it. Yeah, there you go. Fantastic. So then three years at Google, crushing it. Yeah. Why would you leave? So what happened is my boss, who was the head of Google Europe, got promoted to be the chief business officer of Google. He was moving to California and wanted me to go with him. But they didn't have 
my role because there was someone doing a hybrid of that. So they said, do you want to be the global head of search monetization? Now, for some people, that'd be flattering as a $20 billion business. I mean, I'd be in charge of, let's say, monetizing a $20 million business. But it sounded really narrow to me. So I was the COO of Europe. I could do anything in Europe. It's like, oh, let's tinker with sales, tinker with marketing, tinker with partnerships. Also, let's make sure the guys in Mountview are building us what we want. Let's, you know, play around with a few new initiatives here, there, and everywhere. So I could, it was a, like a playground. It was like Google cash and brand. And I could kind of like, just how do I build an amazing business? And suddenly it's like, no, you're going to be, you and a bunch of geeks saying, right, let's keep pulling more levers for search. So it just sounded too narrow. So I said no to that. I also, at the time I had a daughter who had a brain tumor and was being treated by the Royal Marsden and Kings, and we didn't want to break that, it was going well. So both personal reasons and professional reasons why that job didn't work in California. It was actually funny, um, funny. Larry Page, I used to speak to quite a lot, was one of the founders of Google, and he liked me and I liked him. And when he heard about my daughter, he said, Ben, if you want to stop your job and cure cancer, I'll fund you. <laughs> I, you know the funny thing I thought about it for a few weeks I thought, I've got the backing of Larry Page I wonder if I can cure cancer and then I realised I couldn't <laughs> and I got on with my job but it was kind of fun to have the offer of having the backing of a founder of Google to cure cancer yeah, that's... anyway there's a, a fun aside but basically decided not to but then I thought my life's going to get more boring because now the decisions are going to be made in Mountain View and I'll be executing someone else's plan not as much fun as writing the plan and so I wasn't really looking around but in the back of my head I was thinking I'll leave soon and I got approached about a job um, it was actually a turnaround job so it was like a global yellow pages or a global rather pan-european yellow pages company in the days when it was you know had a few hundred million in revenue maybe a billion in revenue 300 million in profit but it was a yellow pages company so the writing was on the wall the print's going to die yeah you need to turn this into a digital business before print dies and like, I guess a lot of ex-military people, I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie. And I thought that sounds like a fun challenge. It was well paid. It was based in Amsterdam as well. I love Amsterdam. So I thought, fine, great city to live in, fun challenge. Give it a go. Did that for a couple of years. We did turn it around. Although along the way, my boss got fired. Not that he's a great guy, but basically as one of these companies that was private equity backed and they'd borrowed something like 3 billion euros, which was like 10 or 12 times EBITDA on a business in print. So kind of silly because obviously in the turnaround, profits were going to go down, possibly forever, you know, certainly during the turnaround. They couldn't afford the interest. The whole company got restructured. My boss got fired. And then they said, right, who replaces him? I put my hat in the ring. Someone else did. I said, right, there's a cool tech strategy here. We've cracked how to sell websites to small businesses and web services. We can license that to all the other Yellow Pages companies in the world. Very long story, which we haven't got time for here. I thought I was very excited about it. I pitched that. Another guy came in to pitch for the job. He was next banker, said, I'll break up the company, shut down the head office, you know, save money. They went with his plan and basically it became a downsizing exercise, which I wouldn't have wanted to do. So when they picked him, I thought, I don't want to hang around for just a cost-cutting exercise. Nothing wrong with cutting costs at the time, but it doesn't get me out of bed in the morning. I like growth and excitement and technology. So um, I had another offer on the table to move to the US. So I took that. Wow. So there's quite a lot happened in the uh, in the time that you since leaving leaving the army. Oh yeah, big time. <laughs> Actually, another fun story. So, so um, at some stage with Google, we're doing a European sales conference in Seville, and. We finished on a Friday and actually Larry Page and, and Sergey, the founders, had come down and they had their Google Jet, which, you know, was a big deal. 
And Larry said to me, Ben, do you want to jump on the jet and we'll go back to London? We'll go back to London. This is how stupid I was. I said, um, which, city, which airport are you going to? This is City Airport. I said, I oh, know my car's at Gatwick, so thank you. But and, and I just thought there'll be plenty more chances to go on the Google jet. Never got asked again. Oh, no. Because like, when are my routes going to coincide with Larry Page's routes? Hardly ever, you know. So never got the opportunity again. So I should have just gone to City Airport and then got a taxi to Gatwick. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. But anyway, so I've never been on the Google jet. Oh, Missed opportunities. Yeah. <laughs> We'll have to go on the portfolio jet. Portfolio uh, yeah, exactly. Jet. I don't know if it's environmentally friendly. So yeah, <laughs> it's something else. <laughs> so then you, you've now moved to America. Another employed job? Uh, yes. So basically I moved to a company called Ad Knowledge to take over from the founder. So it's group CEO job. Uh, Ad Knowledge was the biggest ad tech company in the US. So basically like a holding company for typically around six business units in ad tech. So I think like an email marketing business, uh, a data exchanges, display businesses, viral video distribution, social media advertising, all sorts of interesting stuff. And the idea was take over from the founder, get it ready for an IPO, IPO. Ad tech at the time was the hottest industry, you know, so it's kind yeah. of cool and sexy, et cetera. Turned up, started doing that. Things were going really well. Along the way, another fun story. We've got a lot of fun stories. But in about six months before we were going to launch the IPO formally, we thought we need to do some events that kind of pick things up. There was a big ad tech conference in San Francisco. We actually managed to rent out Alcatraz for the night, which no one ever thought was possible, but you give the right donations to the right charities, you can do it. And we basically had a party on Alcatraz and literally, you know, the ticket said turn up at Pier 33, uh, whatever, six o'clock or something. And we went out to Alcatraz. Um, That's really cool. Very cool. Anyway, random things in ad tech. There was a set phrase at the time, ad tech's the new Wall Street. It was kind of a little crazy. Was this the first time you'd hit a CEO, an actual CEO role? Yes, yes. So everything till then was COO or, or yeah. it was, I've been the number two a lot. Um, yeah. This is my first sort of, you know, CEO role. Anyway, so we had the journey there. We were, had two or three years of building the business, growing revenue, growing profit, polishing our story, really getting things lined up. And we were actually had the, the accountants in, the lawyers in, the bankers in. We were so close to ready for an IPO. And we were thinking on a good day with the wind behind us, we'll get a billion dollar valuation. I thought we were worth seven or 800 million, but you know, there was a hot market. Before we IPO'd, four other ad tech companies IPO'd, they all missed their first quarter's earnings. And then ad tech IPOs as a category just evaporated. Investors didn't want to know. They said, ad tech's too volatile, forget it. So we had to pull the IPO and then work out how do we help our investors get an exit you know, if you can't IPO. Carried on growing. It was like a really healthy business. We thought we could sell it to a big company, one of the telecoms companies or whatever. They all said, you're too big and too complex. But I like that business unit or I like that one. So in the end, after four years of running a really cool group with a really cool strategy, we said we have to break up the business. There's no, there's no exit other than breaking it up. So we started breaking up the business. I actually stepped in to become the CEO of the biggest business unit called Adparla. Did that for another couple of years. We sold that and I kind of moved back to London. And is that when you then started the Portfolio Collective? Not quite. So I did one more job. So I moved back to London without a job, without really a plan, just thinking I'd like to live in London for a bit and I'll work something out. I really, my only rule for myself was don't work in ad tech. Not that I didn't like it, I loved it, but I felt like ad tech had kind of been through a lot of its evolution to digital. And I just thought there's a whole load of other industries that need to be shaken much more you know, and digitalized much more. 
So I was thinking maybe education, healthcare, mobility, whatever. Just came back, told a few head I'm back in town and then just got on with some other stuff, did a bit of teaching at Oxford, that kind of thing. And at some stage, a headhunter came to me and said... Uh, and the fact that's just a little throwaway comment. Just did a bit of teaching at Oxford. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was a fun way to call the time. Um, and uh, yeah, the headhunter came to me and said, there's a, a company called Ola. Ola's like the Uber of India, basically. And they said, they're thinking of launching in Europe. They need a head of Europe. Um, how does that sound? It sounded kind of interesting. It's like, okay, mobility's cool. It's, you know, very green, which is great. Uh, they had an electric vehicle business, which sounded cool. I thought, right, give it a shot. So I became the basically head of Europe for Ola. Employee number one, wrote the strategy, hired the team, acquired 300 and something licenses, taxi licenses all over Europe, launched in about 10 cities. Great momentum, a lot of fun. But about a year in, I quit for two reasons. One is my day job was frustrating me. So it's a regulated business. My name on the license is anything goes wrong, I go to jail. There were some safety issues that were frustrating me and not getting fixed. On top of that, I was being pushed to launch in London when we weren't ready and I refused and it became a bit of a standoff. So in the end, I quit. So that was one thing. But in parallel, I had a whole load of side hustles I was enjoying more than my day job. Uh, and this is where you know portfolio careers and kicked in. So my side hustles then and still now were kind of three things all interrelated. So one was working with startups. That's the biggest part. So it's like board jobs, mentoring, consulting, et cetera, just helping founders build great businesses. Number two is working with investors, either helping them find deals, do due diligence, maybe educating them about how things work. And number three was kind of thought leadership. So it's the teaching of, at Oxford, the odd speech, uh, wrote a book, et cetera. So you wrote a book whilst doing all of these other things? Yeah, yeah. So it's called Marketing for CEOs, Death or Glory in the Digital Age. So fun sort of story behind it is it was in when was it, 2015 I decided to write the book. So I never planned to write a book in my life. I'm an engineer. Engineers don't write books unless they're about engineering. But I'm, I was living in the US and chatted to lots of CEOs because, you know, that's just, that was who I would chat with. And in 2015, six of them in a few months apart said to me, Ben, can I pick your brains? I'm planning to fire my chief marketing officer, my CMO, because he or she is a dinosaur and, you know, we need someone more digital. Said, can you help me find a new one? I said, well, I'm not a headhunter. You know, I'm running an ad tech business. I'm not even a marketer. I've never studied marketing. You know, I've, I've kind of learned about it at McKinsey and in, you know, in my jobs at Google, but it's kind of learning by being an engineer and playing with stuff. They, they would say, well, okay, but you work in marketing. Your clients are marketers. You've met the good ones and the bad ones. What do the good ones look like? And I thought, fair question. So I would sort of describe what I thought they looked like. But it, ultimately, they needed more help than I could give. So I said, I'm going to help you by finding you a good book that will say what is, in, in a world where so much has changed, you know, there's more data than ever before. Mobile is the biggest device people interact with. Social media is everywhere. You know, there must be a book that says with all this change, what is marketing? You know, what's changed? What stayed the same? How do you build an amazing marketing team, marketing strategy, et cetera? I was searching on Amazon, searching on Google. I just couldn't find a book that explained it. So I decided to write it myself. So I did. That's an engineer's solution. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, there's a problem. No one else has solved it. I'll solve it. Uh, so I haven't cured cancer, but I have written a book on marketing. So yeah, so coming back to my time at Ola, I had these side hustles. I was enjoying them more than my day job. So I ditched the day job because then I could spend more time doing those side hustles. So when you had a day job, I had maybe five to eight hours a week to do my side hustles. When I ditched the day job, I had 40, 50, 60 hours a week just to do this other stuff. So I was doing that. Loving it. Some stuff was paying me. Great. Paid the bills. Some stuff was paying me in, in stock options. Fine. You know, long-term wealth creation. Some stuff wasn't paying me at all, but it was kind of fun. So why not? And uh, really didn't know where it was headed. I didn't have a plan. 
I just thought one day I'll probably be like a one-person VC. I'll have you know lots of stakes in companies, either because I invested or because they gave me some. That would be a nice life. You know, it sounds like a good end game. Then lockdown began, and the great resignation kicked off. And within a few weeks, literally two, three, four weeks of lockdown, my calendar was full of one-on-one chats with people asking for career advice. And it was along the lines of either Ben, I've quit or I'm planning to quit. Your career looks kind of cool. How do I build my version of that? And I love helping people and love helping people's careers. So I would say, yeah, fine, here's a Zoom. I was very generous at the time because I had a bit of free time. So I gave people an hour each. But then a few weeks in, I was looking at my calendar. I color code my calendar because I'm really alien retentive about calendars. And it was like way too much, I don't know, blue or red or whatever it was, you know, like just helping people. And I thought, I'm kind of saying the same thing to everyone. So why am I saying it 20 times a week or 15 times a week? Yeah. So I designed a workshop. Then I realized people, what I had, I didn't even know it, what I had was called a portfolio career. Um, so do, you, do you want to explain what a portfolio career so is for anyone who doesn't portfolio know? Portfolio career in very simplistic terms is someone who has multiple sources of income. So it might be as simple as you've got a day job, but you make some money on the side. That's often step one. When people go all in a portfolio career, it's typically you've ditched the day job. And you have multiple sources of income. So it could be anything. At the top end of the market where you know we sort of operate, it's board jobs, it's consulting, it's mentoring, coaching, writing a book, making speeches. But you know, we've also got like deep, deep experts in search engine optimization or videographers. We've got script writers. Uh, one of our members is a fight choreographer. Pretty cool. So all Someone sorts of yeah, that, I guess, all right? sorts of random stuff. There's lots of like sports stars on their second career. You know, it's just yeah. a really cool, interesting bunch of people. It could also be just you're a freelancer. You know, you don't want to work for a company. You want a bit of flexibility to work from anywhere and you know take time off when you want to, fit around family, etc. So it's just a much more flexible way of working. And and most forecasts say over fifty percent of the workforce will work like that by 2030. It's already like 20% now and, and growing fast. So from that angle, I realized what I had was called a portfolio career. Um, I guess I, I, I'm quite chatty, so I told a lot of people how much fun I was having. And so then they said, right, you're having so much fun. Tell me more. You know, what yeah. is, How does it work? How much do you charge? How do you find customers? So I realized my calendar was clogged up. I thought, right, I'm going to build a workshop. Call it a portfolio career workshop because you know, I realized what it was called. If people say, Ben, can I get some career advice? Is it, I say, is it about portfolio careers? They say, yes. I say, here's a link. See you Wednesday. So it's just the same workshop every Wednesday. Nothing changed. Oh, I kind of fine-tuned it. And it started off, I think the first one was 15 people. Then it was 20, 25. It just grew. It was up to about 50 people a week. And for a short period, I thought, this is nice and efficient. Yeah, it's only, I'm helping loads of people with their careers, and it's one hour a week. You know, pat, pat on the back. You yeah. know, well done me. But it kind of got a life of its own. So two things happened that kind of made me realize there was more. One was people kept asking me questions I didn't know the answer to. Like, how much do I charge for my services? I thought, well, I know what I charge, but A, I'm winging it. You know, that's not very scientific. <laughs> um, and B, what I charge isn't what you charge because everything's different. So but I think so, everyone to a degree is winging it. Yeah, that, that, no that's a total really phrase. Like, you can have that tattooed. You know, <laughs> yeah. Everyone's winging it. But basically, I thought, I probably need to do some structured thinking around that. And they say, well, what's best practice for networking on lockdown? I thought, well, I know what I do, but is it best practice? And I realized, literally, I was winging it. I was winging it with confidence and it was working. But, you know, to really have a structured approach to helping people launch a portfolio career took more than a one-hour workshop. The second thing that happened is in the workshop, it was just on Zoom, I'd say to people, introduce yourself in chat. And people would introduce themselves and they were just ridiculously interesting people. And afterwards, people say, can you connect me with him or her or whatever? Because basically, I think there's a collaboration opportunity or I want to learn from them, pick their brains, whatever. I realized this needs to be a community rather than a workshop. Yeah. 
And we needed formal training, not just one hour, you know, good luck, goodbye. So luckily I was sitting on some spare cash that I was going to invest in other people's companies, invested in my own instead, and launched the Portfolio Collective. And here we are, two and a half years later, we've got 8,000 members all over the world. We help them with training, we help them with collaboration, we help them find work. Really cool community and loving it, basically. That's awesome. Yeah. So then, if we just quickly touch on how we met, yeah, I remember I uh, one day I just get this random message on LinkedIn from this guy I've never heard yeah, of, yeah. Uh, who says, "Hey, it's great to see yeah. uh, other veteran entrepreneurs. Yeah. Let me know if I can help in any way." So I'm like, who who is this guy yeah. Ben Leg? I look at your LinkedIn profile and I was like, "Wow, okay, yeah. shoot your shot." I was like, yeah. "Hey, do you fancy meeting for breakfast?" Yeah, and then we had breakfast. There you go. And then you told me about your uh, the veteran entrepreneurs group that you created. yeah. So it was just kind of a random thing. Is I was one of the the founders of a startup that I was mentoring as ex army as well, and um, we often meet just go for a walk in the park. It's kind of nice and. We were just reflecting, saying it's kind of nice hanging out with ex-military entrepreneurs. You've got two things in common. You know, you're yeah. ex-military um, and you're entrepreneurs. And so there's loads to talk about. And it's just kind of nice. And we said, I wonder how many we know. Maybe we could pull together five or six people for a few beers at some stage. And I just looked on LinkedIn and said, oh, I know 20, 30, 40 people, something like that. I'll just drop them all a note and say, hey, look, just thinking of getting some veteran. I literally searched for, I think, entrepreneur or founder maybe, and then ex-military. Knew about 40, dropped about you know, 40 of them a note, you included. And I think 25 turned up to drinks. It's like, whoa, this is, that was a demand. And since then, it's really just been word of mouth. You know, people yeah. in the group tell others. But it's just quarterly drinks, getting together ex-military people who are entrepreneurs to chat, learn from each other, network, et cetera. Really easy to organize, really fun group. It's a brilliant group. I, yeah, I, yeah. I love it. If you could give a piece of advice to someone yeah. coming up to the end of their time in the yeah. army, what would what would you advise them? So first of all, start networking early. And ex-military people are really nice to each other. Like it's a really supportive group. Don't be shy. Just you know, connect with people and say, can I connect with you? And they'll almost certainly respond and they'll either say, let's have a chat or come along to this group or whatever, or join that group. But you'll end up just, just start picking their brains, ask them for stuff. That's a number one. I'd say polish your LinkedIn profile early because version one's never good enough. And try to avoid the kind of embarrassed, I put my military CV in through a thesaurus and got some go you know, civilian gobbledygook out of the other end. But try and sort of um, work out the right language and get opinions from people who do recruiting. And then probably finally try and work out where you want to be, not for the first job out, but for the second or third, because yeah. the first one just needs to be a stepping stone to get to the step after. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. Ben, thank you so much for your time today. No it's worries. Been, it's been lovely yeah. listening to you talk Pleasure. about your, your experience. Yeah, cool. Thanks very much. No worries. Thanks for listening. I'm sure you'll agree the stories from the guests on the show are incredible. Starting your own company is a brave and difficult thing to do. There's a theme of resilience running through all these stories, which is key to success as an entrepreneur. If you're a veteran with a good story to tell, we'd love to have you on. If you're leaving the military and you want to get in touch, email podcast at littlebigtech.co.uk. If you run a business and you're looking for an IT company that's entrepreneurial and forward thinking, please do get in touch. I hope you enjoy the rest of the series.